Welcome to the Xeno Podcast, where we talk about how we shape stories and how they shape us. Um, today is a very special day because it is, one, Jackson's birthday. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> happy birthday Thanks. to him. It's his birthday podcast. Wouldn't want to be anywhere else. <laughs> and also, we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Philip H. MacArthur, who is the Dean of College of Arts and Humanities and a professor in cultural anthropology and integrated humanities. Um, he's a published author of many works relating to folklore, cultural identity, and the Marshall Islands. So that's our guest today. All right. Thank you. Before we get started, rumor on the, on the street around BYU is that you're a book sniffer? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I've lost my, my gift, my acuity for book sniffing as I used to have, but that is true. Um, wow. I used to, uh, I have so many books that I'd read that I could smell the book and I could identify which press it came from, whether it was Duke or Oxford or Harvard, the University of California, just by sniffing it. Wow. Is it the kind of paper? It's because every press has different paper, different ink, and different glue. And they're very distinct. And you know, when you read, part of it's yeah. an olfactory experience, right? It's not <laughs> just purely the words there and holding it, but you have olfaction going on here too. And so some of the real great books smell good. Yeah, they do smell good. <laughs> like the old book smells just like so good. Yeah. So. Now, if you're comfortable, we both picked our favorite smelling books and we want you to say which one is better. <laughs> Okay, well, I, I, it's the press that I know. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't just any, yeah. Okay, we'll just see. This is <laughs> a, just an old book. Which book is smells better? Yeah, which smells better. Yeah. So we've got a, a developmental yeah. book. That, that That's just a musty old book. <laughs> hey, this is a good critical. I have this book. Well, this is this one's not that pleasant either. It's really perfumey. <laughs> That's what I thought. I didn't um, like that one as much. It, it's one of those that after about <laughs> 45 minutes of trying to get through Nietzsche, you would go, oh, I don't know if I like <laughs> Nietzsche anymore. But uh, yeah. neither one of the, neither one of those is very pleasant. Interesting. <laughs> try try <laughs> something. too gross. <laughs> Our smell acumen is so this so is not. So low. I, you know, you think about it. Think about your memories. Mm-hmm. It, it, just a whiff of some smell, your memory will go back to that place and the time and your thoughts and your feelings in that place. It'll trigger memory as much as any sound and even the visual things we do. Yeah. I should have brought Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, those are good. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. I wonder yeah. how much book smells have like shaped people's lives. Just yeah. it's the quiet. Well, Absolutely. you know, the, the, the interesting thing to me would be is does the smell affect your response to the argument being made? You right. know, if, if it's a pleasant smell and you're enjoying it, are you l inclined to be more open to the argument and what is being uh, presented? Or are you recoiling, pulling back? Or does it lead to different kinds of memory, improvement of memory? I don't, you know, I don't know. This is all purely speculative. But think about um, if you have a traveled much, especially when you travel uh, internationally. Mm -hmm. Every country, and certainly cities and regions of countries, have a distinct smell as soon as you get off that plane, right? Yeah. You get, uh, get out there and the different kinds of flora and f of the region, the soils, but also people, the things they eat, and they have distinct smells. Mm -hmm. 
and and we never captured that. That's part of the life experience and the bodily experience we have in cross-cultural engagements, but we never talk about smell. We talk mm -hmm. about meaning and words and languages and what we see in the buildings and the architecture and the clothing and the, the behaviors, the traditions, the things. But we don't talk about smell as tradition and smell yeah. as part of the experience. I've always wanted to create a little scratch and sniff ethnography where you can smell <laughs> the culture you're going to, you know. But it's, it's a real significant part of, of our daily lives, but we don't know how to really talk about it and address it. It's and just kind of backgrounded. Yeah, and that's kind of anthropology, right? That's where your interest in anthropology yeah. like kind of ties into that. Or yeah, you know, and you think about what people respond to when they go cross-culturally that they recoil at more than the differences of language and, and everyday overt behavior mm -hmm. is smells and food. Mm-hmm. Culture shock is first registered in the food. Oh, I don't like what they're, you know. Yeah. And smell and, you know, taste and olfaction are closely linked mm -hmm. together. But we never really have a way of addressing those kinds of things. Some cultures actually try to capitalize on smell. Mm -hmm. So take, for example, even here in the Pacific. Pacific Islanders have made an art out of creating smells through flowers, right? Yeah. And then the different kinds of lays. And it, it, they're, they're intended that way, and they register different kinds of things for different kinds of events. And there's other cultures who've, who make meaning out of smell. Mm. And certainly the, the industry of food has, even in the Western world, they even try to make, as soon as you walk through that restaurant's door, that you get a whiff of certain things yeah. that get you to order and buy. And, and, and the smells seem to operate at such an unconscious level yeah. that, um, well, all the work on pheromones and male-female yeah. interest and desire and attraction. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of look at that as well, and you're not aware of it. It's completely out of your, your common awareness. But you may or may not be attracted to a person depending on how they smell. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole industry of perfumes, right, that try to yeah. capitalize on that very, in colognes, that, that principle, to draw a companion, a mate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you smell that, it's just not happening. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, probably top deal breakers for people is somebody who so. smells bad. I'm sure. Oh, would, sure, sure. Yeah. But you know, it's been interesting that, you know, you'd think that certain smells like a sweaty male, you know, after doing um, exercise or athletic event, we may not be that attractive, but certain kinds of sweating bodies become very enticing. Mm -hmm. And they may not recognize it, but there's just like they like being around and they're attracted to that musk-like male <laughs> thing or, you know, the, uh, this. And, and, you know, and, there's, and then, then those smells become gendered, right? Yeah. Certain smells are associated with femininity, certain ones with masculinity. And some of those are culturally conventions. They may or may not be anything in nature, but we learn that those smells are feminine. Those yeah. smells or something. Like flowers yeah. or musky. Like I'm just thinking of like male deodorants versus female, like how they brand them. One is like right. very floral, one's like musk, bear, <laughs> ox. Oh, and then they give them these names. And right. Be like, you know, Wolfridge. You will be Lightning. this <laughs> lightning fast yeah. macho tiger for exactly. wearing this, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So clearly the advertising industry and smell industry knows that this, how this is working. Yeah. yeah. That's and plays upon it. Yeah. So you did work in the Marshall Islands, and or you've studied the Marshall Islands a lot, and you've... I have. I mean, you live in the United States. So, I mean, have you noticed anything specific in the differences between how the societies address smell? Well, 
on the surface of it, there's a lot of variables going on, but on the surface of it, in terms of what is appropriate proxemics or body distance for engaging in a conversation or the intimacy to familiarity to closeness and relationships of family to just a general associate familiarity to formality and each cultures have different expectations in how far you are from each other in those different kinds of relationships and some of that has to do with smell not all of it there's all kinds of other variables going on but to be to be close up and not to be close is very distinct from Marshall Islands in America, how you are to engage that, especially intragender relationships that would be forbidden in the West and they would suggest it means something else. But those intra male, male, female, female contact is understood to be something else than in the United States, certainly. Are we at a good distance? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're too far away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be very much closer. Right. Even as a professional, like. Yeah. But it's not mm -hmm. as pronounced to take, for example, certain Arab nations, Arab cultures, right? Mm -hmm. They're very close together. <clears throat> they, they, they become masters of reading each other's pupils to see what your disposition really? is. And that's one reason why they wear sunglasses even in buildings. Not because they're trying to, you know, the brightness of the sun or be cool, mm -hmm. but because they get right up at each other and they look at each <laughs> other and they see where you're at by your eyes. But they're also, they'll be taking a deep smell, okay, to see mm -hmm. where you're at, so to detect things. But look here in the Pacific, right, where we're, we kiss each other on the cheek all the time, mm -hmm. right? Or take the Maori who come up and nose to nose and breathe each other's ha, and breathe it in. Yeah. And Americans are not going to greet each other with a deep breath, but we're smelling each other. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Just more subtle. Yeah, yeah. So, cool. so from the the Pacific, the or, or then you take certain cultures like the Germans, who are some of the furthest apart, who who keep each other. There's greater distances. The Arabs are some of those the most close together. Mm -hmm. Latin nations are fairly close. European, especially Northern European, you start getting further apart. Asian, it's, it's, they're very comfortable, certainly so, for example, in China, they're very comfortable being squeezed and pressed together on a, on a train, where mm -hmm. we're just <laughs> feeling recoiled. Right. Yeah, very. And, and, and that train ride smells. Yeah. And I'm not saying them pejoratively, but there are a lot of smells when you're right up there with 40 other people boxed in. Marshall Islands, um, uh, you know they'll make comments they because they they experienced Americans through the World War too mm -hmm. and most of those soldiers who are there fighting aren't smelling very good yeah <laughs> okay they've been I in battle for days on have... sweating right yeah like these Americans well they're liberators and they're big and tall but man <laughs> Maybe they need to go bathe in the lagoon, and then we'll have a conversation. Yeah. So we actually read an article by you. Um, I have it here. So the the ambivalent fantasies, local prehistories, <laughs> and global dramas in the Marshall Islands. Wow. So kind of your um, your observations on the relationship between the U.S. and the Marshall Islands. Yeah. And the the bombing that went on in the atoll. Could you like explain for people who maybe don't know? Um, the history between those? Yeah, to, to get the American piece of this, we got to go back just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because prior to American occupation, the Japanese had occupied as part of their imperial outreach. Yeah. And they had taken control of 
the Marshall Islands by 1914, and the League of Nations by, by 1920 had, had granted it to Japan. Mm -hmm. League of Nations was the precursor to the United Nations. Right. And prior to the Japanese were the German colonialists mm -hmm. who came out to exploit the copra possibilities, coconut. And before that, you have some contacts with Spanish and British. The Marshall Islands are named after the, cap the, the British Captain Marshall. Mm -hmm. okay. So you've got a series of colonial um, incursions upon the Marshall Islands for more than a century. Really, if we go back to Spaniards, it's, it's two and a half. Okay. Yeah. And so by the time the United States arrives with the war in the early 1940s, they have been occupied for quite some time, mm -hmm. okay, by a variety of different sequence of different groups. So the, the United States starts to invade into the Marshall Islands in 1942 and in 1943. And it's part of the United States strategy is to get from Hawaii mm -hmm. and keep pushing the Japanese back across Micronesia all the way back and then arrive finally at the Philippines in their great push back to arrive. MacArthur right. says, I will, shall return, you know, yeah. I will, and I will come back. Um, Japanese are unable to occupy Hawaii. Mm -hmm. It just attacks on Pearl Harbor. Okay? Yeah. And so the strategy is for the Americans are seeing this strictly as a launching pad, the, the first initial steps to be, be pushing the Japanese back. So they invade the Marshall Islands. Mm -hmm. Okay, And most of their invasions are um, uh, air, uh, attacks. They're not really landing. They only land at Aniwetak mm -hmm. and um, Kwajalein. Kwajalein, you may have heard of, is where the missile tracking range is today for the United States. It continues to occupy it. The rest of them, they're just doing bombing runs to just isolate and frustrate the Japanese. And then they take the islands and then they just keep moving. But they leave a certain number of resources or uh, military personnel mm -hmm. to continue to occupy the islands so that by the end of the war the Marshall Islands are occupied by the Navy Department and they're administrating a run in the islands. Mm -hmm. okay. And then by 1946 the United States determines that these isolated atolls in the middle of the Pacific would be the primary location for their nuclear testing initiatives. Right. And so they relocate the Marsh Marshallese uh, first um, most Americans here think of it as Bikini. Mm -hmm. Marshallese pronounce it Bikini. Bikini. Um, they relocate the Bikini Islanders and then start doing the first atomic bomb hydrogen tests there. And then they relocate the people of Aniwetak by 48 and um, do a test there. So they do 23 tests in Bikini and 43 in Aniwetak. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's where this notorious relationship begins. And these bombs these hydrogen tests. By the way, bikini is just kind of a fun aside. Yeah. The word in English, bikini, comes yeah. from that. Really? Because How did that work when out? the French designer of the new swimwear, the two-piece <laughs> swimwear, fun. is designing this and creating this at the time that these nuclear tests are going on in the oh 1950s. And he gives it to this this blast. Okay, here's a yeah. this is a blast. Wow. And it strips bare. Okay. <laughs> so it's the wow. one Marshallese word that's in the English language. Bikini. But kind of, not pronounced correctly. It's not pronounced correctly, exactly. And then what see so um, they they remove the islanders directly from those islands so that they can do the atomic bomb tests. Yeah. And they persuade the islanders. It's a forced migration. It's not something they really want to do, but they persuade them to do it. The military general says, 
this you move for us this is we're doing we're developing technologies to end all wars mm, of course you're yes. doing this on the behalf of all mankind humankind and they're giving up their homes yeah where their history and their mythology and their lives have been inscribed upon these landscapes for centuries and centuries and they're giving it up and then the United States blows them up Right. And so some of the islets are completely incinerated, destroyed. Right. But then the, the, the U.S. military doesn't know either, but the nuclear fallout um, then contaminates these atolls, still does, yeah. okay, for generations to come. But even more incredulous, it's problematic, is that, that winds blow. Right. And so the nuclear fallout, the nuclear waste is blowing downwind. And then there's mm -hmm. these islanders downwind who never re relocated and moved, and yeah. it drops on them. Oh, wow. Okay, and there, we have some pretty good evidence that they intended to see what would happen to the human body. It was mm -hmm. human experiments to see wow. what would happen with this fallout. Marshallese will tell me stories that they would, they were the little children, they saw, looked out the sky, and they heard from the Americans what snow was because it looked like this white oh. stuff coming down on, down on their island, and they all ran out and grabbed it. Mm. Okay, and now most of those people, not all of them, but... A lot of them have experienced stillbirths, deformations of a birth, cancers, thyroid cancers, uh, uterine cancers. Mm -hmm. It's been really devastated, more devastating to the people downwind than the ones who are relocated. Yeah. But ones relocated want to go home, but they can't right. go home. And then they have gone home because they said, oh, it's okay. It's not, the, the contamination isn't as bad now. You can go home, but then the, the, the fallout the radiation counts are high it's a very controversial thing yeah so we have in the context of this historical event um, an exploitation and an abuse of a group of people mm -hmm. um, and then the United States occupied Kwajalein Atoll as a missile tracking range that they still do today and so they fire off from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California inactive warheads Mm -hmm. didn't use the lagoon in the Marshall Islands as target practice. Wow. And, but, but here's one of these complexities. They make rent, rent payment mm -hmm. to occupy it. They've relocated the Marshallese off of the main island because main island is as cushioned as nice as anything you'll see in Waikiki, the way they, the mil, U.S. military lives and personnel. Yeah. But the Marshallese are moved on to a little islet called Ebai. Mm -hmm. And there's 30,000 people there on something that's only about 200 meters wide and, and two miles long. Wow. And it's considered the slum of the Pacific. There is not a tree on the thing. It's just a, just a slum. And they catch a ferry to go work the base. Wow. Mm -hmm. But the rent payments are huge. But here's the catch. Um, <clears throat> so the government, 50% of their GNP is coming off these rent payments. They don't want the Americans there anymore. But mm -hmm. if the Americans leave, they go bankrupt. They so they're caught in this, right. this, this bind here. And then we've got a traditional social structure of chiefs and high chiefs and lesser chiefs and a variety of matril lines. These are matrilineal mm -hmm. people. All rights, inheritance, titles, and ranks pass through women, not through the men. Mm -hmm. But a man gets authority through his mother. It's a very structured, genealogical, ascribed way of getting authority. They have it. But... Then there's the controversy of how much those chiefs get, and then the common people don't get anything from those rent payments. Right. And it's created a greater stratification and hierarchy and abuses than we've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a very precarious relationship the Marshallese have with the United States. Right. It's strained. It's fraught with controversy. Mm -hmm. However, as abusive as the Americans have been to these islands, there's still a relatively positive way. They, they like Americans. Mm -hmm. They see them as a powerful, um, gracious world chief who's a great warrior but also kind. Yes. Because they give us things. So that's why I say ambivalence. Yeah. They're both, a, they see them as both a violent warrior and abusive, but they also see them as the great chief who takes care of his people. Right. So, yeah. And that's kind of the Latau, right? And then that's how Latau, the trickster, yeah. comes in. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to explain more about that? Just so okay, well, Latau is, is one amongst the demigods of the Marshall Islands. He's mm -hmm. probably the most popular of all of them. People tell stories about Latau all the time. It's a t he's not the most important, but he's yes. taken on. He he's he's able to address their modern lives better than just any other god. Okay. And and so they look to Latau because he's he's fun, mm -hmm. he's playful, he's subversive, but he's this, he's the, he's the descendant of these really powerful. He's a descendant of these powerful matriarchs. He's connected to these female deities who. Uh, we're so critical to the whole unfolding of the cosmos and the islands. I yeah. don't have time to go into all that. <laughs> Maybe the next podcast. But Latau <laughs> is Latau's great because um, I mean he shows up at all these historical junctures and upends power and authority. Mm -hmm. That's what he probably does. He's he's brilliant. He's intelligent, but his intelligence allows him to be tr the best trickster, devious, subversive. And he undermines authority and power everywhere he goes. And he makes people look like buffoons and idiots. Mm -hmm. And one of the great stories of him is after he tricks some of the most, the, his brother, who's a high chief, um, by, he, he creates a sailing canoe that is beautiful and shiny and looks like the best ever made, but it's made out of ironwood that doesn't float. <laughs> and his brother makes one out of the breadfruit tree that really does, mm -hmm. and he tricks him into trading it, and he sails off in the really good th canoe, and his brother tries to sail off and it sinks, you know, and mm -hmm. a great chase ensues. But he does that all over the place. But his great trick was when he gets to Kitterbus, the island south of the Marshall Islands, mm -hmm. they're having a famine, and the chief, um, he, he, he asks the chief what's going on, and the chief says, well, we, we just can't eat. And he goes, well, I can fix that. Create an earth oven. Okay. And he creates this earth oven, so you dig it into the earth, and they prepare it, and prepare the stones and the coals. And then he says, he says and then Latau jumps in. Now, Latau is he's a tr shapeshifter, like tricksters all over the world, like coyote amongst the Native Americans, and Nazi the spider in West Africa. Mm -hmm. They're all over the place. They shapeshift. They can become different things. And he, so he jumps into this thing and he says, cover it, bury me. And they're just amazed by it. And then as they're walking away from the earth oven, he comes walking up, kind of like brushing his hands. As he's already escaped from the earth oven. He says, open it. And they open it and there's this abundance of food, of all kinds of food, and he, he relieves the famine. And he does this mm -hmm. multiple times. But then he tells the chief, I'm leaving. And the chief says, well, you can't leave without teaching me how to do this. I still want to feed my people. <laughs> and he goes, okay, that works. That's good. Prepare the earth on the fire. Now jump in. <laughs> and the chief goes, it's hot, it's hot, it's hot. <laughs> and he goes, no, no, it's all going to be okay. I'll take him, bury him, cover him, cover him. You know, and they cover him in leaves <laughs> in the dirt. Yeesh. And the wives of the chief of Kitterbus are saying, why isn't he coming out? He didn't come out as fast as he used to come out. And he goes, oh, he's just making a lot of good food for everybody. 
And then eventually he says, okay, uncover it. And they uncover it. And mm -hmm. There's a cook chief. <laughs> well done. And then, of course, what does he also want? This Latel has enormous libido as well. Mm. And so he gets the wives, and but then he he's, they, they go after him because he's killed the chief and he escapes. He escapes and he ends up, some say, going to Fiji. But then at some point he encounters an American ship. And you can tell the Americans are a little more clever than others, but they're wealthy. Mm. And so he goes with them to America and he teaches them everything he knows. Then many generations later, mm -hmm. out on the horizon, show up these huge ships with these, these uh, aircraft carriers, with these planes that come in and just completely destroy the Japanese and their authority and their power that is yeah. there. And then a few years after that, they build a bomb so powerful that it can destroy the whole earth. Yeah. Where did they get all that knowledge and power? The trickster. Yeah. And the metaphor of him cooking the chief is perfect, right? Because he has now the, the bomb has cooked the Marshallese. Right. Right? But, it's and, but at the same time, he brought food to them because then they always celebrate the Americans came and just gave us all kinds of food and clothing. And it's like, you know, he's dangerous and he's kind. How do you deal with that kind of extreme and contradiction? The trickster resolves the contradiction because that is what he plays upon is extremes. Mm -hmm. Americans wow. are extreme, Latel's extreme. So that, that's the basic story of the trickster. So the story doesn't stop. This is the beauty of these kinds of cosmological stories. They keep adapting as life changes. And he keeps re showing up. And the other gods seem to fade away, but Latel can keep showing up at other historical junctures and other places. Yeah. Yeah. How does Latel affect the Marshallese concept of authority? Well, that, see, that's, that's great. That's a great question because um, one, two things are going on here. One is he, he subverts authority. Okay. But by subverting authority, interestingly enough, you reveal it. You reveal what the authority structure is by challenging it. You just kind of live authority and just assume that's the structure and the hierarchy and the stratification. He comes along and messes it up and everybody brings it to attention. Everybody's attention, so they see it. But also, he's valued too because authority comes in different ways from the Marshallese. It comes through this, the lineage, through your, mat, through your mother, through the matrilines, lines, okay, through these chiefly lines, it passes. And um, one of his aunties, one of the female goddesses, is the one who gave all that, gave the first title of the high chief. And she gives the canoe and these things that are so important for inter-island intercourse and travel and resources and things. Then another of the great goddesses gives divination. You get power by knowing and understanding what is to come, what is the truth through divination. And then the trickster is the youngest. He shows up. And his power is through clever manipulation and deception. And so to be a really, to have power and authority is to know how to play a certain kind of indirection, like Latau does. Mm -hmm. You never just, like an American, put out all your cards on the table and say, you know, this is what I, you know, even in the government, this is what I've, I, I, this is what I think, and here's my argument, and it's rational and it makes sense. It's much more subtle world wordplay in games, almost, and they even say he's being so Latau, even politicians. Mm -hmm. Really? when they're being so sly and clever like that. Mm -hmm. So it plays out in everyday life, too. But um, he, tricksters all over the world have a role of 
subverting authority, but in a way they renew society and culture. They give it new life through their subversive acts. Yeah, like you cook the chief, but you still bring food. Yes, yeah, you still bring food. And, and most tricksters around, they'll seem like that they're causing mischief and trouble, but in their process of causing mischief and trouble, they also give something, a bounty, something life. Like these, most tricksters give sexuality. Mm-hmm. That's life. That brings life. But they also bring death. So it's always playing with these opposites and extremes, life and death, good and bad, heaven and earth, bringing them together, power and, and weak people always playing with those boundaries. So mm-hmm. do people look up to Littell? Well, that's a good question, again, because it's kind of an ambivalence. Again, they, they admire Littell-like cleverness. But a clever person can also be very dangerous. So it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they respect it, they honor it, but it's also is he's just cockadoodle. He's just naughty, and naughty people can cause all kinds of commotion and problems. But and so in a way, the Americans are just naughty. Yeah, <laughs> they're going around yeah. causing trouble all over there, <laughs> just like Latau. Yeah. But you know, everyone. But he'll also make some good things. They'll always talk about him as extreme. He's he's all love and all hate are with him. All kindness, all meanness. All these extremes are contained in this one character. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I don't want you to get you the, the sense that he is, that they say that this character, Letal, did all this, and that's historical fact. That's not what's at stake here. Like all good story and mythologies, it's what they dramatize. And, it, and it's a way of thinking through the problem. And so they, it dramatizes and they playfully can explore these ambiguities of their life through Letal. And, and so, and we all use narratives to try to make sense of where we're at and what our lives mean and why it is this way. It's no different than celebrating pioneers coming across the plain and God directed them to Utah. Okay, they're saying, okay, here's a story that helps us make sense of why we're here where we're at. Mm-hmm. So in a curious way, why they, they're very peripheral people. These are powerless, small little atoll dwellers on the earth. They know that they're meaningless in terms of global power <laughs> okay mm-hmm. but the irony is for them it's kind of like but in a way we're the ones who created global power we made the americans right You're right <laughs> yeah that's what i loved about your article how you said that even though they're talking about the americans and latau they yeah. centralize it to them which yes, right. i really admire it, it brings yeah. it back and it, it's making sense on their terms so instead of you know, we think of them, outsiders think of them as these are just these peripheral people who are insignificant to the point that you have um, the Americans, yeah, government and military say that's right, so we can go out there in these places and exploit it and take what we want because they are insignificant and meaningless. Henry Kissinger, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, he was the Secretary of State during Richard Nixon, okay? Mm-hmm. And he was, and the, the Marshallese were trying to do some reparations to get some. Um, so legal support for what had taken place. Yeah. And Hess, Kissinger said, well, there's only 70,000 people out there. Who gives a damn? That's wow. his quote. Wow. Okay. Well, those 70,000 people. <laughs> I think they give a damn. You know, uh, it matters to them quite a bit. And so that's the way they've been thought of it. That's what's fun here is because most of the world thinks of them as really insignificant, but I'm interested in how people see themselves. 
and how they make sense of it, not mm -hmm. how we impose on them and project things upon them, but from their vantage point, how do they position themselves and make meaning in the world and recreate that meaning? Um, and they do it in a very fun, clever, playful way. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that trickster makes us think about things we normally don't think of. And so he challenges boundaries. You know, until there's the opposite, we really don't get what the, 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 the original point is. Opposition in all things. Opposition gives us the ability to even comprehend any difference. It's through difference we recognize things. Singularity, we don't, we don't understand it. But when in contrast, mm -hmm. I am not you, be, I am me. Only mm -hmm. by my recognition of your difference to me then do I even comprehend myself. At this larger level, that's what they're doing with the story. They're comprehending themselves. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's uh, there are very, but you've got to all. We also need to see that they're very playful people. Mm -hmm. It's hard to imagine people who've been so exploited to be so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are modern representations of Latour? How do you, like, how do the oh. stories keep going? Well, besides the storytelling that, you know, where I pick get all these stories about him going on to places. Um, well, sometimes, you know, even uh, in more contemporary popular literature and uh, f films that they're starting to do, he's a kind of a character that plays into these things sometimes. Um, one, this, this novel that's gotten a lot of attention out there called Malal, it's about Ebai and its overpopulation and how d dirty and decadent it is. Mm -hmm. And it, Malal means in Marshallese the boat of demons. And, but they, they play on this, Latel the Trickster shows up at all these key locations in the story. Mm -hmm. um, which is a lot of fun for me because the novelist went to all, many of my publications and my recordings of these stories and used the ones that I had found put into this novel. Interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Another layer cool. of these things. Um, but also people can be tricksters in everyday life by being sly and clever and they'll even refer, Latel his name literally means the sly one. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what that means. And, and then in every day, in, in, not every day, but performances for different celebrations, people enact the Latalic character and be kind of a clever, playful buffoon um, uh, that, that shows up, a clown, um, at, even at the main Christ, Christmas festival, where they blur Jebero, the god of life and renewal, into the image of Christ, who is the Christ who gives life and renewal, because now they're Christian, and so they merge the Christian God with their traditional God. Really? And so right there in the middle of one of these celebrations about, you know, the seriousness of the divine Christian God, the Latel buffoon will show up and do these funny dances. So really? It's great. It's great. Um, but a lot of the Marshallese, who are really good thinkers about this, will say, he's kind of like Lucifer. And Lucifer has a role to play. Mm. <laughs> Only through his temptations then do Adam and Eve start to become aware of themselves and the choices. Latel does the same thing. Mm -hmm. He makes us aware and we start choosing. We're conscious of ourselves. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he gets blurred in in some funny ways, even into today. Pious Christianity will say, Latel was bad. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. It was bad, bad stuff. Um, and, and others will just want to be dismissive of it, especially when they think that Western 
Christian people are watching them. Oh, no, no, they don't, that's just bad stuff. They, that's just naughty stuff. But then on the flip side, every one of them are having fun with this idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to have fun with it. Interesting. So his name means, or the sly one, Litao does. Yeah. And one thing that you kind of addressed in one of your articles that seemed very sly to me, at least, was that certain <laughs> politicians use Jebero, the yeah, god yeah. of like life and renewal, right. as a way to like align themselves with right. the public. So, well, Litao is, is the image of power, gaining power through deception and usurpation. Jebero is the god of, of a power and authority through legitimate lines of descent. Okay. And so he becomes the image of the prototypical ideal leader, mm-hmm. of chiefly leadership. Jebero, um, the story is, right, real quickly, his mother, Langatangar, um, descends from the heavens. Her son, he has, she has ten sons at Alinglapalap Atoll. It means the great atoll. There in the east, they're going, she says, there's going to be a paddling canoe race from the east to the west side of the lagoon. These are 30 miles wide, okay? Mm-hmm. These aren't these little, little ponds, okay? Right. There's, in the story, there's no sails yet, so they're just paddling canoes. And whoever wins the race across the lagoon will become the first high chief, and she's going to grant that to him. This is a matrilineal society. So the boys prepare their canoes and hurriedly make them ready, and then they launch out. The day of the race begins, and they launch out paddling across the lagoon. Immediately, the older boys get out ahead because they're stronger and older and faster. And they're on the shore is their mother, Lungatangar, okay? And she calls out to them, and she said to her older son, she said, Tumur, Tumur, take me along. That's what they say. It means take me along with you. He looks back and he sees his mother and she has this big bundle. And, and he, um, he looks back and he thinks to himself, her weight and the weight of that bundle will be too much. It'll slow me down. I'll have to go back and get her and I won't win the race. So he says, calls back to her and says, take my next younger sibling. And so she calls out to the next one. Take me along. And he looks back and sees the same thing. Until she gets to the youngest son, Jebro. She calls out to Jebro, he looks back, thinks the same thing, but then he says, I must obey my mother and honor my mother. Turns his canoe around, goes and picks her up, starts paddling out, he's way behind, he's going slow, but then she starts to unfold from her bundle the first sail made out of the pandanus sleeves. She has in her bundle this big long pole and becomes the mast, the first mast and the gaff and the boom and things, okay? Mm-hmm. And she helps him show him how to rig it up and all the... Uh, the the ropes and how they tie up and then immediately he's out tacking across the lagoon and he's passing all of his brothers <laughs> and his old, he, he's passing them all and then he gets to his oldest brother Tumut and his brother says give me that boat because <laughs> he's going to honor his brother too he's a good guy he's the, he's the good boy and he <laughs> gives his boat and 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 and, and Tumut even throws his mother off that canoe you know biggest sign of disrespect and, but just before Jebro was to jump off, his mother says, take the boom socket, where they, they, they put the, uh, the mount the boom and, uh, uh, down into the canoe. And he takes it. So Tumur tries to sell the canoe, but he can't control it because the boom socket's gone. Well, Jebro takes his brother's canoe and he paddles to the other side with his mother, but he arrives first. And he, when he arrives on the other side of the island, it is called Jay Islet, um, it is low tide. And he pulls the canoe up to the middle of the, the, to the islet, so it can't be seen. And then he goes in, and his mother is decorating him, the vestigers, smells, mm-hmm. putting <laughs> certain kinds of oils on him to smell mm-hmm. just right, and flowers, and his loincloth that sig- signifies his authority. Tumar finally arrives, 
in the canoe, but he thinks he's won because now it's high tide and all the tracks have been washed. Mm. And he starts celebrating himself. I've won, I've won, I'm gonna be the high chief. Just as he's calling out all the people and the mother and Jebro come walking from the middle of the islet and they're singing and chanting that Jebro, Jebro is chief. He makes the surface calm. He loves people. He, he feeds people. It's a chant. And Tumur is so mad at his brother, he refuses to look at him. Well, all these gods become constellations in the sky. Jebro is Pleiades in, the, in our Greek constellation. Okay? Mm -hmm. Tumur is Antares. Jebro, uh, Plato's and Antares never see each other in the cycle of the seasons. When one is setting, the other one is rising. When Jebro or Pleiades is in the sky, it's calm waters, the food is good, the fishing is good, the rains are good, the winds die down. When Tumur comes back up into the sky, it becomes windy and blowing and the waters are bad and it's time of famine and drought. Okay? But they never see each other just like the brother refuses to ever look on his brother again. Interesting. But Jebro becomes the epitome of the obedient, loving, kind God who brings life back to the earth, who, who's ready to just sacrifice his own interests for his mother and others. So m men are evaluated, are you like Jebro? Are you like Tuma, the older brother, who is selfish and self-interested and egotistical? Right. And that's how this story is part of social life, but then in modern politics, Politicians who can make themselves seem like Jebro yeah. <laughs> are going to win. <laughs> and they really try to make themselves appear as um, they're, that, they're reenacting that kind of God. You went into it a little bit in the article. So what do they do to align themselves with Jebro? Yeah. Um, so, for example, the ones that I, I was showing when I was doing my research there was one of the, f the first presidents of the country, right? They, they get independence from the United States, but very still economically dependent. Mm -hmm. he, he's running for his campaign and to become the president again. So he, gives, he was given political speeches. But it's really interesting. Right in the middle of his speech, he breaks away and starts talking about Jebro and this God that's brought all this wonderful good and life to the earth and took care and was honored his mother and honored the, 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 the matriarchs and all this stuff. He's basically saying, that's me, right? I'm the God, I'm the now the leader who will bring you abundance in the future is going to be good for the Marshall Islands, just like Jebro did, you know? So they do it in political speeches. They'll do it in everyday talk. I mean, I've been in situations where people will critique somebody or somebody will like the behavior of some man that he's behaving right and they admire it and they'll say, he's just like Jebro. Okay? Interesting. Um, then they have songs that they have composed and the, they sing and they play over the radio these kind of new pop songs and they have all these references to Jebro and they're his mother. Okay? They're not singing about and celebrating the greedy old brother, it's always him. <laughs> And, and then this, this politician, he was fantastic how he played this game. He put on this big feast, just like a good chief should, and he killed all these pigs, numerous pigs. It's just a big high-status food and was giving it to everybody, and they were all just coming to eat from what the big chief, but what Jebro did. And, but then on the stage, what he has going on is these performances, but one of the key performances is there's his mother and his sister the matriarchal escort, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, her Lungatangra star is like a triangle, like the sail. And there's that sail carrying Pleiades across the sky. So there she sits up on this political stage, 
carrying her son to victory. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So they they they're politically exploiting these these images. Um, so I know you said that it's matrilineal or yes. matrilineal. So are chiefs usually female or male? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question to clarify here. Yeah. A man's authority comes through his mother. Okay. okay. Not through his father. Mm-hmm. He belongs to his father's his mother's family. His his father has authority over his sister's sons. So the man, he's really deferring to his mother's brother. Mm. Okay, you follow that? <laughs> okay, it's, it's a complicated social yeah, structure. It really is. It's mother's brother, okay, and sister's son. This is this, is this really okay. critical thing. If I could, I could show you a very complex kinship chart that explains <laughs> how that works. But just to make it simple, um, so, and also when, when they get married, historically, a man will go live on the property, the land of his wife, mm-hmm. and help raise the children there. And if he, want, if he loves his wife and children, he's going to be really good to them, because if not, they'll just run him off. He's expendable. They don't really? need him. His authority belongs anyway back over where his sisters are. Oh, okay. okay. So he ends up, a man ends up being kind of very an advocate, friendly pal to his kids, not the authoritarian figure. The authoritarian figure in a boy's life, for example, mm-hmm. is my uncle, my mother's brother. He's the pain in my life because he's the one I'm getting my title and my land from. Okay? Interesting. It's a very different kind of dynamic of how families work. So back to your question, remind me. Uh, so are chiefs usually female or male? Okay, and good. How does that work? So what happens is rank is not decide, determined by gender. Okay. Okay? It's whoever's the oldest. Okay. So a female, female can be male or female. Okay. So a female can be a chief mm-hmm. or a lineage head. They call them all up for the general lineage heads, or in your for the the chiefly lineage head, for the chiefly lineages. Um, but what happens is, is that in public, the brother mm-hmm. will quite often be the voice, the mouthpiece. So he'll look like he's the one in charge. Okay. But in truth, is he's not going to say anything until he's consulted his mother and his sisters, and they tell him what to say. Wow. And he's got a goal. He's like, so in this society, it's brothers and sisters are the critical relationship. That's the one that's very profound. Mm -hmm. So, so she's she's very critical. So on the surface, always seem like the chief is the high one, but not the sister's the oldest, the the oldest. She's the chief, and they call her Leroy's, and the male chief is Iroy's. You can hear the same thing, right? And when they talk about siblings, they won't say brother sister. They'll say Jaya Ajata meaning my older or younger sibling. Mm-hmm. You have to add other words to designate the gender because it's all about age. Yeah. But in public performance and authority, the male will take the kind of oratory role. Female will speak once in a while, but she'll usually just be back there calling the shots. Interesting. Okay. Very, Very different. kind of social alignments. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why you have in these gods, too, you have these male figures, but they're all these, they're, they're sons of these key primal matriarchs who their power came from them. Latel's power to deceive came through mm-hmm. his mother, Lime Jukarer, which mm-hmm. her name literally means the woman who is a dirty thing. <laughs> <laughs> but she gave birth to all the animals that annoy us. Oh uh, yeah. Cockroaches, yeah. spiders, Snakes, centipedes, or, all oh. these kinds of things. And then she has this trickster son at the bottom. Mm. And he's, he's, the, he's the last of a very notorious family that is annoying. <laughs> okay? Where Jebro is the youngest child of this, 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 this 
dignified goddess who right. who who brings saline and all these good things to people. Mm-hmm. But they're actually Jebero and Latau are cousins because okay. those two women are sisters. Yes. Okay. Wow. And he's the youngest. They're always the youngest. <laughs> but Jebero's the youngest. But th- but the Marshallese, it's not lost on them. Let's see. Hmm. Isaac was younger. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob was younger. Joseph was younger. It's always the younger one so who somehow, younger. because of their obedience or goodness or something, gets onto the top and turns upside down the normal birth order. Yeah. And now the Mormon Marshallese are, and Nephi was younger than Laman and Lemuel. Yeah. This all makes sense. This all, it's all <laughs> coming together. Wow. <laughs> and all. And because social structures are hierarchical by age, but sometimes the better or more obedient one rises to the top. But we only tell the story when they do. When it doesn't happen, <laughs> we don't tell that story. We just talk about the genealogy, who follows it. <laughs> right. So stories are always inserted to explain why everything got turned upside down. Wow. And that's in the Bible as well as in the Marshall Islands. Our stories talk about usurpation in the Bible. What do you think that says about stories in general, if there's such similarities between yeah, cultures? Yeah. Well, um, stories reflect a lot of things. They reflect the consciousness of human beings, humankind. But they also are not just entertainment. Stories get social business done, and they explain the way things are. They give us a resource for living, not just for thinking about and enjoying. We live and enact our stories. Stories just don't reflect what we do, but we do what stories tell us. We live out our narratives, and we try to emulate them, play them out. And so cultures have these, these critical stories that then explain why this social structure is the way it is, why it changed from the way it had been, and now how do we play into it and live that out. And we as even Latter-day Saints are always being told be like Christ, right? Act like him. Act like the story. Right. So I, I would propose, but there's the good part of it and there's the negative because then popular media and culture and, and uh, advertising wants you to live that story too. They're trying to give you a narrative to follow. If you just don't, if, you're, if your relationship to her just doesn't work out right, there's something wrong with you because the story is it all happens and happily in the end, boy meets girl, you know, kind of thing. It gives us narratives of what even our male-female relationship should be, and we should, we're supposed to live those. Or if you buy this thing, this is your story, and you'll be cool like that guy in the, in the commercial. So we, they, they exploit it. It can be from very negative, but it can also be very positive when you have good narratives to live out. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we're sitting here at a university, we have a narrative, go to school, make something of yourself, get an education, go, make, you know, go find your place in the world, go make a good living and an income. If you don't go to school, you'll fail. We have a narrative. It's, we're living this narrative right here at this university. Mm-hmm. Marshallese have theirs what is important, we have ours what is important, get an education. And if 40 years down the road, you find yourself that it didn't work out the story this way you wanted it to or should have been. What's wrong with him? <laughs> right? Or you become a trickster like Latown and you create your own narrative. <laughs> create your own. That's the moral of the story here. 
Yeah, stories are powerful things. We think through them. They represent to us some of our deepest values and our beliefs and things we hold most dear. But, but we also live them. We live our narratives. And so, you know, once people look down at saying Marshies are just funky, like, no, we all are. We're all doing this, <laughs> just with different narratives. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, for Marshallese people, is the idea of challenging authority more readily accepted, just because of like this prevalence oh. of Latao in the stories? Um. Well, the that that being a clever use of clever use of deception can be can be valued more than it is in some other cultures who think any kind of duplicity or deception is 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 a social sin a social wrong um but they don't like uh they will critique and challenge just ignorant malicious lying okay okay mm -hmm. um it's just the, the, the Latel just creates a way of understanding that part of our humanity. That we are, much of social life is achieved by veiled indirections and things. You'll get better. That's the nicest looking shirt I have seen. <laughs> Okay, we do these kinds of things right. when you think that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, it looks great. You look great today. <laughs> okay? Because it's intention. We, we're doing that because of keeping, maintaining social, positive social relationships. Marcy's recognized that, too, that that kind of indirection. Somebody you know who has cancer and is going to die tomorrow, you still start, you still play the narrative of hope. Right? And are you really lying, you know, kind of thing? Marshallese would recognize that, that gradation. You're not telling the truth, but you're not lying for the intent to maliciously deceive. When you move into malicious deception, that's mm -hmm. when Latel becomes a problem. An evil. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Not when, um, to maintain social life at all, we have to sometimes not reveal the truth. Right, or else right. no one would want to be friends with us. <laughs> we just all spoke what we thought all the time. That would be, <laughs> be a mess. <laughs> yes, you know, you've seen cartoons where people just blurt out what's on their mind, you know, or those little cartoon bubbles, right, that appear, yes. and people could really see what we were thinking, right? <laughs> the danger zone. What was that movie where there was a robot? Where they said had like an honesty setting, and then the person asked. I think it was Interstellar. They I, said like, "I want yeah. 100% honesty," and then he's like, "Are you sure? Because 95% honesty is like proven the, to be the best percentage." Yes, right? policy. <laughs> and, like, and you know, yeah. and some of us who don't want to uh, to be deceptive, then we avoid the truth. Right. Mm -hmm. When your friend says, "Don't you just love my my you know my clothes today, my outfit?" You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to say, you either lie and say, yeah, yeah, that's beautiful, it's wonderful, or that's the ugliest thing I ever saw, you redirected to something else. <laughs> you have opened up a box <laughs> that you did not want to open up. We were talking <laughs> so, about yeah. Flat Earth today. Yeah, the Flat Earth Society. Or yeah, yeah, or, yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. you know, we, we, we and, and all you have to do is just watch contemporary politics and this kind of 
stage flattering going on, right? Yeah. All right, for very politically distinct reasons. And if some people just take all the flatter at face value, they're pretty unsophisticated <laughs> thinkers yes. and social beings, right? Yes. But those who will step back and say, mm, it's just that the Marshallese have developed a way to be really good at it. They're socialized and being really good at these kinds of veiled speech. It's like I've always been interested because the Polynesians, who are our friends here, right, they're very out. They're very open, this extroverted kind of thing. And even they and others will say, like, oh, those Micronesians are so, so quiet and cold. You know, they're, 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 they're so firm and they're so, they're, they're, they seem almost grumpy, you know, this kind of thing. And it's just a misunderstanding of the different communicative resources that each culture has. And Micronesians are very much, they're very friendly and kind will do anything for you. But they'll also, they're not going to sit there and put it out on their sleeve, what they're doing, what they're thinking. And so even everyday speech can become a kind of poetic subversion kind of thing. Mm -hmm. it's, really, it's kind of fun. And if you take them literally at face value, you're going to miss the point. And so many do. Did you experience that when you oh, were when teaching here? Oh, I first here? got there. I, mean, you know, I knew that I was the butt of their jokes. You know? um, and it took a while to figure that it's still, I'm still learning that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and after all these years of hanging out with them and having them live in my house, I'm still figuring some of this out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking yeah. with us. Well, and yeah. Um, is there anything we left yeah. out? Yeah, oh, is there anything I, you I, have there's, to There's say? so many things. We'll, just, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Awesome. awesome. All right. Dialogues with the Trickster by... Dr. Philip H. MacArthur. Yes. <laughs> Don't forget the H. Make sure that's it's, it's essential. <laughs> All right. This has been yeah. the Xeno okay. Podcast. All Thanks right. for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. This was the Xeno Podcast. You can stay updated by following our Facebook and Instagram pages at Xeno Podcast. This podcast was brought to you by BYU Hawaii's Reading Writing Center. You can also find us on YouTube or iTunes or by searching Xeno Podcast. That's X-E-N-O Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at podcastzeno at gmail.com. Thanks for learning by listening.